G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We've been tracking along through Genesis 6 in the lead up to the Great Flood and the story of the salvation of mankind from a cataclysmic disaster. We haven't quite got there yet, but this is going to be a decisive moment in that epic story. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Today we're going to look at the announcement that comes from God, where he declares his determination to go ahead and do this thing and bring the flood on the land. Is it a determination or is it not? We'll find out. Let's have a look at our text for today and we'll get some idea of what we have to deal with. This is Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, this is actually a very skillfully crafted piece of text because it incorporates a number of elements that we should be already familiar with from our earlier studies in Genesis. As we're accustomed to do, we're going to comb through the text and see what we can pick up. I really like the approach that we take on this podcast, i got to say, where we Really let the text speak for itself. I know there's a lot of other speakers and teachers that, that have a more topical approach, and I guess there is always a place for that kind of thing, but it has a tendency of forcing us to bend the text to suit our narrative. You know, A lot of people approach the flood story with questions, like how could a loving God send the flood, and is God just or unjust in his actions and that kind of thing. But I think that we're learning as we go that we can trust the text to help us arrive at a decent theology, which gives us a solid base for trusting God. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that, mate. I think we're always better off when we just let the text speak for itself. There's time for theology and all that after we've taken the time to understand the text. And your theology is going to come out all the better for it. Now, we've talked a little bit about the divine perspective so far in Genesis and the idea of what God sees and what he might feel, and God has had a few things to say, but this is the first time that he's spoken directly to Noah, according to the text. And there's an important distinction between what God said to Noah and what we read earlier in the passage, which gave some scholars the impression that there was repetition and redundancy in the Bible, but... When we heard this other stuff about the corruption of violence, it wasn't in a speech addressed to Noah. Yeah, that's right. And that repetition of ideas presented in two different ways is part of the poetic structure of this text that we've been talking about for some time now. Everything's included for a reason. So God begins to speak to Noah, and we have the word Elohim presented here as he talks to Noah. For those who came in late, way back in our early seasons of the podcast, we talked about how the different names for God communicate different ideas about the relationship between God and the person he's talking to. At this point, we don't have the special covenant name Yahweh Elohim, as we saw back in Genesis 2. He is God. He's Elohim. And that's going to communicate a couple of things for us that we should be picking up on. The number one thing about the use of Elohim is that we're being presented in this creation story with the supreme Elohim, the God of gods. The name Elohim functions here as representative of all divine beings by way of supremacy or headship. He's not just God. He's the God of all gods. Which is very important. And what's the second point? Well, the second point here is that Elohim functions as the God of all people, and not just those with whom he might be in a special relationship. And since Noah is about to become, along with his family, the sum of all human beings in the narrative, it's fitting that this name be used in an address given to the progenitor of all nations, 
Like Adam before him, Noah will come to represent all mankind, but despite Noah's righteousness to this point, we don't have any indication of a formal agreement or covenant between these two parties. That'll come later. So how do you think God communicated to Noah? Well, we don't really know how. In other stories, we might be furnished with that information, but we don't get it here. There are no dreams or visions, no prophets or seers. We don't have the kind of language you might expect from a face-to-face encounter. But what I like here is the contrast with other Mesopotamian flood narratives where the gods seem to have some difficulty in getting the message across to their chosen devotee. When you read Atrahasis, you find that Enki first attempted to communicate with Atrahasis by way of a dream, but Atrahasis didn't understand it. And then because of his vow of secrecy that he'd made with the other gods, Enki was unable to speak directly to Atrahasis, so he had to come up with a conniving scheme to make sure that Atrahasis would just happen to be in the right place at the right time to hear Enki talking to the wall. I'm saying that in air quotes. Now, the great thing about the biblical story is that God doesn't have to get the approval of the other gods to be able to say what he wants to say, and he can just talk directly to Noah. That tells us a lot about the superiority of our God over the gods of the nations. Now let's have a look at what God has to say. For the purposes of this reading, I'm not going to stick with the ESV, which I read earlier, because it doesn't follow the Hebrew text very closely. I think the King James does a much better job, even though the ESV supposedly follows the same translation methodology. But I think the trouble with the ESV here is that they've attempted interpretation of the phrase rather than simply translating it. And they're not alone because most other Bible translations are doing the same thing. So when it starts this divine discourse with the phrase, I have determined or I have decided to bring an end to all flesh, that's an interpretation because that language of decision or determination does not appear in the original. It doesn't? No, when you read a more straightforward translation like the King James Version, you get a much closer reading of the text and it says, The end of all flesh has come before me. And as I mentioned earlier, this text is full of all kinds of interesting details. So let's take a closer look. The last time that we had the same Hebrew phrase behind the end here was back at the start of Genesis 4. And unfortunately, because of translation, that detail would be lost on most readers. Remember when we were going through Genesis 4 and we talked about the conditions that led to the situation where Cain and Abel needed to bring sacrifices before God? Yes, yes, yes. That was the episode called Meat Cain, Season 4, Episode 4. How do you remember these things? And back in that passage, when you read it in English, you get something like, and it came to pass, or in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. But what we really should be reading there is something like, when those days came to an end. So putting a bit more context around that, it would say, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground, and when those days came to an end, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, etc. So if you're following our coverage of that, you'll remember that this was a dark time for Cain and Abel because the ease and prosperity that they had formerly enjoyed was now gone. Tough times were coming, and we know how that played out. Here again in Genesis 6, we're at the boundary of the ages. The times, they are a change in, but this isn't just the end of a good season or something like that. When God says the end of all flesh, it's more than livestock. It's more than people too. I notice that some translations have the word humanity in here. That doesn't belong there. That word basar means flesh, as in mortal beings of all kinds, not just people. This is the end of the age as far as the original creation. And all the things God had made was concerned, and it also spelled the end for those creatures that God had not created. And, of course, I'm talking about the Nephilim here. 
they might have been semi-divine, but they're still creatures of flesh. The giants are still part of the story. A lot of people probably miss that. Yeah. Now, that part of the text that says, has come before me, that's a tricky one because it's literally has come before my face. I, I am now presented with this situation. This is what it has come to. And I think that's where the translators of most modern versions have found the inspiration for the idea that God has determined this. It's like they can see the resolve of God to face this situation and to address the necessity of action, but they don't want it to sound like God has been left without a choice or this just happened and now he has to deal with it even though he wasn't involved in the circumstances that led to this situation. Or maybe he was. Sorry, Calvinists. Uh, The problem with that is that it puts God in the situation of someone who knows a bad thing is going to happen and knows that something bad needs to happen in order to fix it and doesn't have any other options. So he just announces that he's made this decision and he's beyond question. It takes the free agency of God's created beings out of the equation. I quite often hear people criticizing the so-called mean and horrible God of the Old Testament, but it's not surprising when you look at the translations people are reading. To say that God has determined to destroy everything, rather than to acknowledge that the creation itself was hell-bent on its own destruction, is a severe misrepresentation of the text, not to mention the character of God. So reading this more closely, we can see that the creatures God had made were on their own path to destruction, and that's why the text goes on to talk about the violence that filled the earth. And speaking of that violence, we know the Hebrew Hamas is the word for violence here, which actually incorporates all kinds of evil by definition. But what I think is more significant is this idea of the land being filled, that's malah, with violence. That's interesting. So what makes that so important? That word for filling there is found only twice before this point. I'm going to read the verses where it occurs. See if anything stands out to you. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And here's the other one, Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Okay, so that was the creation of the fish and birds, and the creation of man, who were to rule over said fish and said birds. Note that these... All were blessed by God, and of all creatures made by God, only these were blessed. And only these are said to fill their respective domains, the sea, the air, and the land. And now we have the same terminology attached to evil and violence. What that says to me is that we're supposed to see a connection between the terminology in these passages and the created beings in question that tells us something about what is actually going on in Noah's generation. Because if we're being honest, we have to realise that the world seems to be always full of violence. There's got to be a lot more going on than just people not being nice. Yes, that's a good point. And those category distinctions that God put in place in the original creation, they've all been eroded away through the depravity and the wickedness inherent in all of these created beings on account of the fall of man and the rebellion of the sons of God. And that might sound strange for those of you who haven't heard our early episodes on creation and cosmology and the nature of the created beings, which we covered back in season one. What we need to be aware of is that the highly symbolic language used in Genesis 1 paints a picture of God setting the entire cosmos in order, including its inhabitants, which includes spiritual beings as well as those of flesh. 
The sea creatures, as inhabitants of the deep, represent the spiritual powers. The birds of the air are also representative of spiritual beings that are still constrained to the terrestrial world. We would think of those as demons today. Later, of course, we're going to find that the origin of demons is connected to the Nephilim, but in the original story in Genesis 1, their origin has not warranted an explanation. Now, in Genesis 6, the language of filling pulls together the idea of the birds and the violence in order to connect these beings with the situation created by the Nephilim. And all of that was created by the rebellion of these inhabitants of the deep, who in Genesis 1 are the great sea creatures. What we see in this picture of the land being filled with violence is the idea that on a cosmic level, the entire creation is involved in violence against one another. It's not just a war on the land, it's a war in the heavens but it's playing out on a human battlefield. Everything has fallen into chaos, and this is what has necessitated the end of all flesh. Sounds to me like you're describing some kind of cosmic war where the angelic powers are doing battle in the land through the humans on the ground, and they're using the Nephilim as the muscle. I think you're onto something here, Chris. We're going to develop that idea as we continue through this story. God said, for the land is filled with violence because of them, or through them, or on account of them. The language there is, again, suggestive of the face of God in the sense of his turning toward the cause of the problem. But who are they when God says them? Is that the giants? Now, the last reference point we have to come back to is that language of all flesh, which is indicative of the mixing and the commingling of the sons of God with the daughters of men and the breakdown of distinction between man and beast. Again, this is not about impugning the animals with some sense of moral failure, and I think it would certainly not be incorrect to think of the Nephilim as part of the problem here. But the common thread is that there's human sin and depravity and greed involved in every aspect of this situation. This is going to require a comprehensive solution, and the only right response to chaos and destruction is to re-establish order through creation. And creation means starting with lots of water. You got it, mate. And that's going to put an end to the violence. Well, actually, as we go through the story, I think we're going to find that the flood itself is a description of this violence. Uh, What? I don't understand. You're telling me that the flood is some kind of story about a battle between angels and demons and humans and giants? That sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings or one of my Dungeons and Dragons campaigns. Are you sure that's in the text? Oh, it's definitely in there, and we're going to explore that idea in the coming episodes of the podcast. This is going to rock the boat for some of our listeners. I see what you did there. Anyway, we better get back to our reading. God says, Behold, I will destroy them with the land. Now, if you thought what we'd just been talking about over the last couple of minutes was mind-blowing, wait until you get hold of this. So God says he's going to destroy all flesh. That much isn't surprising, and we've covered the specifics of who's involved there and why that's going to happen. What you might not have thought about before is this mention of the land. God is going to destroy it. I I don't get it. What's so special about that? Remember what we were talking about recently with regard to the land. Every time you hear that phrase, the land, you should be thinking the way that an ancient Israelite thought about the land. You should be thinking the way an exiled Jew remembers the land. The land was the sacred space in which God had his habitation among his people. So when God declares that he is going to destroy it, that's huge because it cuts off the human connection to God at an earthly level. This is effectively a development of the exile from the Garden of Eden, separating God from humanity on an even grander scale. 
Previously, when we got to the end of Genesis 3 and interpreted that final verse as God going out into exile with Adam and Eve, we still had that connection of God to the land. Now, that's gone. And that's pretty serious, actually, but I'm still a bit blown away by what you said about the flood in connection with this cosmic war. Is there any evidence that other people were thinking about the flood that way? You know, we've talked a lot on this show about the book of First Enoch, right? Yes, we have. Not for a while, though, but we talked about it a lot in the last two seasons, that's for sure. That's right. One thing you'll notice as you read through First Enoch is that there's hardly anything actually said about the flood, despite all this stuff about Noah and what was going on during his time. But what you do read about is an epic battle between the angels of God and the fallen sons of God and the giants. This is from the Charles translation of First Enoch, and I'm going to read chapter 10 from verse 1. Then said the Most High, the Holy and Great One, spake and sent Uriel to the son of Lamech, and said to him, Go to Noah, and tell him in my name, Hide thyself, and reveal to him the end that is approaching, that the whole earth will be destroyed. And a deluge is about to come upon the whole earth, and will destroy all that is on it. And now instruct him that he may escape, and his seed may be preserved for all the generations of the world. And again the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and cast him into the darkness, and make an opening in the desert which is in Dudael, and cast him therein. And place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him abide there forever, and cover his face that he may not see light. And on the day of the great judgment he shall be cast into the fire, and heal the earth which the angels have corrupted, and proclaim the healing of the earth, so that they may heal the plague, and that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and taught their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. And to Gabriel said the Lord, Proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of fornication, and destroy the children of fornication and the children of the watchers from amongst men, and cause them to go forth. Send them one against the other, that they may destroy each other in battle. For length of days they shall not have. And no request that they, that is their fathers, make of thee, shall be granted unto their fathers on their behalf. For they hope to live an eternal life, and that each one of them will live five hundred years. And the Lord said unto Michael, Go, bind Semyaza and his associates who have united themselves with women, so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when their sons have slain one another, and they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones. Bind them fast for seventy generations in the valleys of the earth, till the day of their judgment and of their consummation, till the judgment that is forever and ever is consummated. In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire, and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined forever. And whosoever shall be condemned and destroyed will from thenceforth be bound together with them to the end of all generations. And destroy all the spirits of the reprobate and the children of the watchers, for they have wronged mankind. Destroy all wrong from the face of the earth, and let every evil work come to an end. And let the plant of righteousness and truth appear, and it shall prove a blessing. The works of righteousness and truth shall be planted in truth and joy forevermore. And then shall all the righteous escape, and shall live till they beget thousands of children. And all the days of their youth and their old age shall they complete in peace. And then shall the whole earth be tilled in righteousness, and shall all be planted with trees, and be full of blessing. 
and all desirable trees shall be planted on it, and they shall plant vines on it, and the vine which they plant thereon shall yield wine in abundance. And as for all the seed which is sown thereon, each measure of it shall bear a thousand, and each measure of olives shall yield ten presses of oil. And cleanse thou the earth from all oppression, and from all unrighteousness, and from all sin, and from all godlessness, and all the uncleanness that is wrought upon the earth destroy from off the earth. And all the children of men shall become righteous, and all nations shall offer adoration, and shall praise me, and all shall worship me. And the earth shall be cleansed from all defilement, and from all sin, and from all punishment, and from all torment. And I will never again send them upon it from generation to generation, and forever. All right, so you should have noticed some things as we went through this in light of what we've just been talking about. Firstly, Noah is instructed to hide, but there's no mention of a boat. Secondly, we get told there will be a deluge, but there's no water. Thirdly, the destruction of the corrupt and depraved inhabitants of the land comes by way of violence, not by drowning in a flood. Which is incredible, and now that you mention it, it's really obvious, but I wonder how many people just never noticed that before because they were still reading the, you know, the Sunday school version of the flood story in their mind instead of what was on the page in front of them. But does that all mean that the author of First Enoch doesn't think there was a flood? No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think he sees the battle and the flood as the same thing. Oh, you're really baking my noodle with this one, man. I'm going to need some time to process this new information. Well, you're in luck, my friend, because if we hadn't already had enough surprising information, I've got one more surprise announcement to make on this episode. We're already into December, and this year has absolutely flown by. Things are getting really busy, and everyone's got a lot going on. And for that reason, our podcast will be going into recess for the rest of the year. So you've got plenty of time to continue baking that noodle. We're going to pick up where we left off and continue our coverage of Genesis chapter 6 in the new year. And we'll just keep it rolling into Genesis chapter 7 for our seventh season of the podcast in 2024. I know it's a bit unorthodox for us to have our break in the middle of a season, but with everything going on at this time of year, I think it's warranted. I can tell you that I certainly have a lot going on at the moment, and I'm going to appreciate a break, which will enable me to put a bit more time and a bit more energy into these episodes once the silly season's over. Well, I have to admit that's kind of good because things are ramping up for me as well, although they're certainly ramping up for you a lot more rampier. Uh, And it will be nice to enjoy the Christmas holiday season, I guess, without other obligations. But I guess in the meantime, if people are looking for content, they can always grab a copy of the book, Answers to Giant Questions from Amazon. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And for readers of the book, it might pay to cast fresh eyes over it because a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about now has been hinted at throughout the book. I just didn't come out and say it so explicitly in the book, but you will find there's actually quite a lot of material that's going to tie into what's coming up in future episodes of the podcast in the new year. So if you want to get ahead of the curve and you haven't yet got a copy of the book, now would be a great time to do that. If you're quick, you might be able to get one in time for Christmas and it'll make a great gift for your fellow Bible nerds. Get one for a friend. Hey, I don't care. Get one for an enemy. They already hate you. You might as well make them mad. Just kidding. Uh, Bless those who curse you and uh, curse those who make you read excessively large books about niche topics. Also kidding. Please don't curse me. Uh, Even though we don't have Q&A today. (laughs) That's right. We don't. And don't do that. Don't curse me either. Uh, But you could actually pray for us. We would like that very much indeed. And speaking of prayers and petitions, if you have questions that you would like to send in to be featured on the show so that we can have Q&A in our future episodes, please don't hesitate to send them via 
our website, giantanswers.com, and we will tackle them in the new year. Okay, so yeah, we're going to leave it there. On behalf of Chris and myself, I would like to wish you all a wonderful and meaningful Christmas holiday season and a happy and safe new year. We'll be back in January with more fresh new content as we bring Season 6 to a close, and we're looking forward to sharing that conversation with you then. We sure are. Thank you for listening this year, everybody. Merry Christmas, and we'll catch you next year on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Bye-bye. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Is that nog I see? It is indeed. It's a big uh, It's a big nog. It is a very large nog. A regular sized nog. Yep. Well, you know what they say. Uh, yeah, a hard-earned thirst needs a big eggnog. I'm very, very tired. Cool bananas. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so what makes it a South African church? Is there just like lots of people from South Africa or is it like specific to like a, a denomination or something? No, just a lot of bry, I think they called it. Like yeah, barbecue. barbecue. Yep. Yeah, so... Um, mm, love a good nog. Uh-huh. <sighs> what do you got there? Smoothie. Ah, so that could be eggnog. Just this is an egg smoothie. I've ran out of eggs. Otherwise, I'd usually put eggs in my or one egg in my um shake. Oh, yeah, so, there you go. It's practically eggnog, mate. You just need some um, some, nog. some some seasoning. You know, a bit of um, cinnamon and nutmeg. Um, True. Little little dash of clove. You've got to be very sparing with clove. You can really bugger it if you get too much, but it's it's really nice just in small amounts. Much like my company. <laughs>